His plan is inspired, a sponge is required for all the grease paint they need to strip. This is the second time we've recorded the man with the twisted lip. Welcome back to A Study in Granada, a yearly podcast where <laughs> I, a fan but not expert, like no the Shrock Hawks canon, uh, watch the Granada television series from the 1980s starring Jeremy Brett and Edward Hardwick and talk about it with my friend Jackson F1. Jackson, welcome back. We did it. We sure They did. all told us we couldn't do it. They told us we couldn't do it. They told us we shouldn't do it. They begged us not to do it, but here we are. To talk about the man with the twisted lip again. Yes, we were imprisoned for a year and a day by dark forces and powerful wizards mm-hmm. and uh, the Book of Enoch, but we managed to push our way through. Now we're back in the material world again, baby, uh, and we're here to re-record this episode <laughs> what, because <laughs> what is this energy that you've gained in the last ten minutes? Because <laughs> <laughs> I really don't know. Um, <laughs> So, listeners, we have two guests here, and uh, we. <laughs> so, I think it's become fairly apparent Jackson was replaced by a changeling at some point. We knew that. AKA Edward Hardwick. But when I say at some point, I mean at some point within the last 20 years or so. We have two guests here, so we'll introduce in a second, but uh, we want to thank them a great deal because they recorded yes. with us, and then the audio just didn't happen, and. We didn't do anything for a year because we were like, well, wait for a time when it all, when things are easy, when we're all in a good place emotionally. And as you know, it is 2020. <laughs> no one's been in a good place emotionally well, for so long. So we're doing the same thing. I way. also changed like jobs twice and moved apartments twice and just life got in the way in general. But I'm pretty sure. Shh, we haven't introduced you yet. Shh, 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 hey. shh, shh. I'll meet you again, Jesse. I'll do it. <laughs> I'll fucking fight you. As you might have noticed, we have guests, uh, Jesse Cooper. Hi. Hi, guess what? Last time I recorded this, I was still going by he, him. I'm not anymore. I'm a baby. Hey. And also, we have uh, Maya of Twitter. I don't actually know your last name. It's fine. To know my surname, you must answer me these riddles three. <laughs> Maya, as I always say, after having guested on Shaw October a couple times, uh, refers to our friendship as the podcast equivalent of a loveless marriage. So that's the energy we're bringing into this episode. Uh <laughs> Yeah, we have uh, both of our guests here as we Jackson and I the first time when we were setting up the recording we knew we wanted both of them to be on um, and we messaged both of them at the same time and said which of these episodes would you like and within two minutes of each other they responded the man with the twisted lip so we decided to uh, double guest this time Uh, so we're going to talk about the um, season three the man with the twisted lip obviously starring Jeremy Brett and Edward Hardwick uh again so what did we think about it this time around oh man there's exactly three minutes i think of this episode worth even like watching i want to say mm-hmm. maybe four uh disagree uh, i don't know i was bored i was so bored through most of it except for one part which i think we've put five references on our notes about it so you know it's all of the money counting right yeah it, that's it Sorry, I was looking at Jesse's cat. I didn't hear a word of that. Maya, what do you think of this episode? Why did you pick this one? Because I know you've seen the, the show many times. I have like like a, th- this is like a thing that I have like a lot of thoughts about on like a personal level because it involves things like poverty and disability and stuff, and those are things that I have dealt with in my life and continue to deal with in like ways. So 
Um, yeah, like uh, I mentioned, I mentioned this before we started, but for the the your, for your listening public, nobody nobody asked me to do this, but there's a lot of like sums of money mentioned in this episode, and I like sat down with like a currency calculator and worked out what each sum of money is in modern currency. Which is fun for me, because since this story was set, um, we decimalized the currency in the UK, which means that, like the US, we have a hundred of... We have pence and pounds, which is like cents and dollars. And a hundred of one is one of the other. But this is, like, the 1800s, so it's pounds, shillings, and pence. And there were, like, colloquial names for various sums, like guineas and farthings and half a crowns. And turkey twizzlers, you know, just various that you know things that it, it, it can. I know, like I know, as like as a kid reading a lot of Sherlock Holmes and other Victorian stories, they just say, "Oh, the, it it was over twenty guineas," and I just be like, "I mean, that's a lot of guineas, but how much is a guinea?" I don't know. What is a guinea? So, is it a person? Uh, a guinea is one pound and one shilling, because there's twenty shillings. Do you know what? Listen to the gratuitous pausing episode about young Sherlock Holmes. I go, I explain what a guinea okay. is in that. Because I also did that on this. My role in guesting on podcasts seems to be explaining Victorian currency. As boring as I found this episode, I do think there is a lot of worthwhile things to talk about in this episode. It's more about the theme of the episode than more the actual um, content. Because it was mostly just them walking around being like, where's this dude? And then the dude shows up. What a get to get Jeff Bridges in 86. I agree that this episode has slow parts. It's got some, like, got some pacing trouble. But I love this weird weird story this is one of my favorites for enjoyability if not necessarily for actual quality if that makes sense yeah i mean it's a really like the the original conan doyle story is quite short and they still cut things out of it so it's it's a you know it's like a man with a twisted lip speed run (laughs) and it ended up being sort of like weirdly ethereal Mm mm-hmm like, it did feel dreamlike, and I kind of wish they played a little bit more with the dreamlikeness, with the dreamlike feel of it, because it mm-hmm. it doesn't feel like a mystery was really being solved until the last, like, ten minutes. It's just a bunch of stuff that happened. Yeah, I mean, this is the 50-minute problem, for sure. I'm not sure exactly where the story falls in the canon, but it does feel like Doyle's senioritis <laughs> uh, approaching the final problem was starting, definitely setting in here as well. We'll likely get into this at the time, but one of my notes is just, Sherlock Holmes is about to forcibly wash you ASMR. <laughs> <laughs> we have a long way to go before we get to forcibly washing you, so... Um, <laughs> Mike, I believe you have a summary. Yes, jeez. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh. Oh, I love this energy you're bringing, Jackson. <laughs> so, Watson is about to leave the bar of gold and opium den for which he intends to rescue his friend, Kate Whitney's addicted husband. Oh, uh, when wow, is that, okay. Uh, when a repulsive customer grabs him, as Holmes in disguise, he takes Watson along at St. Clair's place, for Neville St. Clair has disappeared without traces. <laughs> what? <laughs> These, we are... Prequels. We are back on the Conan Doyle.com, Arthur Conan Doyle.com summaries, which are in and of themselves uh, an opium induced dream. He vanished, and all that was left of him was yeah. his traces. <laughs> well, well, I guess you could technically say that's somewhat true, because if it was just one trail they were following, it would be a trace. But traces, yeah. you know, but I don't know. So on Monday, his wife caught sight of him glancing down at her from an upstairs window in the bar of gold. But the managers denied he was there and threw out Mrs. St. Clair, who soon came back with Inspector Bradstreet. 
On the loathsome establishment's first floor, they found St. Clair's clothes, blood traces on the windowsill, and last but not least, Hugh Boone, a repelling but well-read baker, so far considered to be inoffensive, whom Bradstreet decided to arrest for lack of anything better. <laughs> right. That's kind of unfair. This, like, this story does, like, g- give a reason, like... It's not a good reason, but, but like... I mean, the sentence in and of itself is, um, the last one is Hugh Boone, a repelling but well-read beggar, so far considered to be inoffensive. Like, he's repelling but inoffensive. I found it a little offensive in multiple ways. Oh, yeah, definitely. But... Also, uh, repelling but well-read beggar, considered by many to be inoffensive, is most of my Twitter feed. <laughs> I laughed at that like I'm not someone you follow on Twitter. <laughs> Let's stop there and talk a little bit about opening of this jesse you mentioned the dreamlike quality and i also want to talk about i like that a lot of this especially up until watson and holmes leave the bar of gold there is scenes a very like dreamlike aesthetic with like at watson's home heavy colors kind of a dark aesthetic uh and then we move to the alley where the bar of gold is located and it's this like brackish night uh with like mist and fog coming through and a scream in the darkness like very nightmarish in a way like it fluctuates between nightmare and dreamlike so much of this episode was shot like a music video oh yeah you also have this constant like vaguely eastern asmr 100.4 hertz clear your room chakras hour and a half diurnal beats thing going on wow i would not buy that album yeah like finger on a wine glass kind of yeah. Like, I feel like all you would need is just have, like, some, like, soft, like, 80s, like, power ballad behind it. Like, it could work. Yeah. Uh, we also get Holmes in disguise here as well. Uh, a thing that we always like to call it. And, oh boy. <clears throat> he looks like a wizard. I shooting for Willow, you said it was. No, no, I was gonna say he looks like, he looked like a hopeless wizard. But, you know. This might not mean anything to anyone but Mike, who is what I believe the internet refers to as a tiaboo. Uh, yeah, you called me a wee, a tifu or a weeb, but for England, and a friend of mine said a tifu, T E A F. Yeah, Holmes's disguise looks like Wurzel Gummidge. That's too deep, even for me. Okay, Wurzel Gummidge was a character played by John Pertwee, who you may know from Doctor Who, um, who was basically an animate scarecrow, and like he had like a carrot for a nose. Like that's kind of what Holmes's look was in his disguise in this episode, because. It looks like makeup that was designed for the stage. You know, all I mean, he's wearing this, like, huge, infeasibly pointy nose. Like, that's the kind of, like, fake nose you would wear on the stage so that people in the cheap seats could still sort of make you out. Or it's the kind of fake nose that you would wear if you were Orson Welles, who was very self-conscious about how small his nose was. I think the only reason that Holmes's disguise worked is that he was in an opium den, which tends to be very sparsely lit and are also full of people in altered states of perception. But honestly, there's something very, like, on-brand about uh, Watson going on, like, a kind of routine rescue mission to get someone out of a spot of trouble, and suddenly a man grabs him and it's Sherlock Holmes in a silly disguise. I feel like we need to have that exact energy for the next, like, big Sherlock and Watson thing. There's a great short story that used to be on the BBC um, Sherlock Holmes, like, web portal thing. And this was, like, this was years ago, so it might not even be there anymore. But it was a story, um, it was, like, a funny Sherlock Holmes story. And what? And Holmes keeps appearing to Watson in disguise. At one point, Holmes disguises himself as a corpse upon which Watson is performing an <laughs> autopsy. <laughs> 
I absolutely agree that that needs to be a thing in a Sherlock Holmes adaptation. Holmes is just like a non-violent Kato, like from the Pink Panther films, where instead of jumping out of a cupboard and karate chopping him, it's just like... It gets to the point where Watson becomes paranoid that everyone he meets could be Sherlock Holmes. He, like, pokes every every chair, every TV, just to make sure. Watson just sitting there in the evening, just, like, staring really hard at his wife. <laughs> I think what would have uh, made this episode, I think, one of the best episodes ever, is if they stuck with the dreamlike quality, and, like, you never saw Sherlock look like Sherlock the entire time. You just knew it was because he <laughs> hung out with Watson. Who was... Also on opium? Yeah. Why would I don't know why that would just for the dreamlike quality? It just Sherlock Holmes always looks different in every frame. Like the fifty minute problem, as you mentioned multiple times, just mm-hmm. really hits this one hard because, mm-hmm. like, if it's thirty minutes, I feel like it was okay. Oh, yeah. There's just a lot of long, wandering shots where they're just walking. And don't get me wrong, it's well shot. Mm-hmm. I like the I like the ambiance. I just feel mm-hmm. like very beautiful. It just needs more anything to keep my attention to it because because it's so dreamlike and so kind of atmospheric it made me want to fall asleep because that's what i generally watch when i want to fall asleep something like kind of atmospheric with nothing it's kind of weird though because um i i mentioned watson's wife just now which is um in the story that it's based on it starts at watson's home with his wife and um isa whitney the guy who's in the opium den his wife goes to specifically see Watson's wife, because it mentions in the story. I think Watson has a line about like people in trouble, cut, like are drawn to his wife, like birds are drawn to a mm-hmm. lighthouse. You know, like she has like a reputation as being someone dependable, and it's very funny that like Mrs. Whitney comes to Watson's wife is like, "I need help," and she's just like, "Yeah, Johnson." Although this is the story um, which is kind of famous because Watson's wife calls him James, which isn't his name in she, any of the other stories. She meant her lover, Professor James Moriarty. <laughs> the crime author Dorothy L. Say has had a theory that that was a pet name she used for Watson because his middle initial is H. And Say has surmised that his middle name was Hamish, which is the Scottish form of James. So it was kind of like a pet name that they used, which is I, which is I think that that is being far too kind to Arthur Conan Doyle, who just didn't care. If she'd called him Jamish, I would maybe agree. <laughs> the cinematographer for this did a lot of other episodes. Like this, this is like not like a a new person with a weird angle. This is someone who like felt like this was what the episode needed. Like they were like, this is the thing for this, and I appreciate them like. Trying a new style, going with a new thing. That was cool. Before we move on, there's only one last thing I want to touch on, and that is Patricia Garwood, who plays Kate Whitney, is actually the wife of Alan Plater, who wrote the episode. Oh, nice. Uh, see? It's all who you know. <laughs> and call James. There was, oh, there, there was a little a little bit mm-hmm. that I liked in the interaction between um, Kate Whitney and Watson, is where she's, ob- she's obviously like come to Baker Street to find Holmes. And the way Watson talks about Holmes is like someone would talk about their cat. Mr. Holmes disappears without trace at regular intervals. There's really no cause for alarm, only curiosity. He's just like, eh, he comes and goes, um, he's in and out, he knows what he's doing, he comes back to get fed. I made a note near the end of that scene that it, it does a nice job of, we had likened in... Um, the solitary cyclist the Holmes and Watson have a very like marital spat about the you should have gone to the public house blah 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 and when Holmes goes to leave Watson's like mm, maybe you should go to the public house and Holmes comes back he's like what an excellent idea like I clearly heard him and I love this bit at the end where Watson's getting ready to leave and Mrs. Hudson's like and what am I to tell Mr. Holmes should he return tell him I've disappeared without trace kind of like a if he can do that so can I what's good for the goose is good for the gander 
that is the point where the laugh track would play in the sitcom that this is trying to be. Uh, and then like the, like the, as they're on the the carriage to go to meet with um the, the put upon lady of the episode, Mrs. Sinclair. Yeah, uh, Watson's like. I expect Mrs. Sinclair came to you saying that her husband had disappeared. Exactly. Well, it seems to be a continuous thread in life's fabric. Watson, what is this? I'm here for just sarcastic Watson, who is annoyed at having. Like, he wanted to have a nice, quiet evening in, and he's not getting that. Yeah, what, yeah. Watson's characterization through the episode is just, like, increasingly put upon, and it's actually kind of funny. No, it is. It's like, but back in, in the, in the, um, our original Watson, his whole thing was food but like mm-hmm. for this episode like watson's thing is that he just wants to go to bed he just <laughs> wants to sleep and he just doesn't get allowed to I, I do really like watson in this episode because by because he was it's like when picard gets mad and next generation and he just wants to be over with it like it's like that kind of energy it's just like come on stop it i don't care sherlock i don't care it's really good i love it he is like a cat in that way in the scene here as well as they enter which i think we've touched upon i'm gonna we'll just kind of breeze the rest of the synopsis here in a minute because it's pretty much just the wrap-up at that point but there is a point where watson is offered food and he turns it down which is just like i don't know i kind of like that they because it's a different watson they sort of pivoted from the watson's always hungry joke that they had with david burke um and into watson being put upon but generally more of just like i want to go to bed now holmes i did i did clock a few times in the episode like um there's like i don't know if it's like an apocryphal story but i've heard that edward hardwick wanted some of (laughs) holmes's line so that he wouldn't just be he wouldn't just be standing around reacting and i did spot there was a a couple of times in the episode where like watson says a thing that i recognized as the thing that holmes says in the story i know also that the granada production we're starting to at this time around here jeremy brett's second wife had just died and he had in between the filming gone into like a deep manic depression was like hospitalized for it and so i think part of it was also like lightening the load on jeremy brett a little bit beyond the fact that i have also heard the same apocryphal story that hardwick pushed for more things to say which i mean fair enough uh, I mean, David Burke got away with that, or did fine without having the extra lines, but whatever. Bazinga! No, but I think, I know, and especially as Jeremy Burke got actually progressively, like, physically sicker, obviously Watson had to start carrying the load more and more. Uh, there's one whole episode where he's not even in it, and it's just Watson and Mycroft doing an adventure. Oh yeah, I remember that. Huh. No, I like it when Watson is not treated like a big dummy, mm-hmm. and has like, you know, because he is an educated person, he's just not... Sherlock. Well, and this was one of the first things that had kind of gone back to that because I, I was I've been reading a book recently called um, Bending the Willow, which is a sort of biography of Jeremy Brett specifically of doing this show, and apparently like that was something that David Burke really like kind of pushed for of like no I don't want to be the doofus and the creators of the show were also like yeah like Watson's not not a dumb shit like he's a very intelligent he's a doctor which I mean you know in the eighteen hundreds he thought people's bones were haunted but still like he had a lot of schooling like well it depends if the germ theory came out yet because before it was haunted and after germ theory they knew the germs were haunted (laughs) (laughs) it's it's interesting you mentioned that because recently i read a comic book called uh victorian undead which is sherlock holmes versus zombies and in that they specifically talk about the discovery of germ theory and like the broad street pump Mm. Also, Professor Moriarty is a zombie, and then he's a clockwork zombie. Oh, what? How? Okay. 
Speaking of Broad Streets, uh, we're about to meet uh, Mr. Brad Streets in the uh, summary. Wait, <laughs> That's fine. I, I was going to do an even more ham-fisted uh, uh, segue there, but upon his arrival at St. Clair Place, Holm learns that Mrs. St. Clair has just received a letter from Neville. Is he alive, as she is convinced he is? Dead, as Holmes and the police believe? Holmes, puzzled, spends the night smoking and meditating. At sunrise, while splashing his face with water, he suddenly grasps the truth crystal clear. He rushes with Watson to London, where Bradstreet takes him to Boone's cell. Holmes gives the baker's face a thorough wash, and soon St. Clair's features <laughs> appear. The so-called missing person had been an actor in his younger days. Then he became a journalist, and, in charge of an investigation on professional beggars, he made himself up to work his way into their world, and saw that his culture and his wit brought in surprisingly substantial earnings. Therefore, he began to lead a double life, beggar in the daytime, gentleman in the honor approach in the evening. Sorry, a beggar in the streets, a gentleman in the sheets. Surprised by, <laughs> surprised by his wife. While he was looking out of the opium den window, he took up his beggar disguise and preferred be charged with the murder of St. Clair rather than confess that Neville St. Clair and Hugh Boone were one and the same person. In the end, Bradstreet decides not to prosecute St. Clair, and Mrs. St. Clair forgives her husband for having deceived her for years. The way that you said, is he dead, is he alive, as his, as his wife believes, or is he dead, as Holmes and the police believe. I was so sure there was like what was coming was like, or is he perhaps both and <laughs> neither? <laughs> That's right, he was a vampire. Blah I'm a beggar vampire. Mm-hmm. No, go ahead, continue with that. What tell me more about this beggar vampire character. Spare us some blood, governor. <laughs> oh, that's Tennyson. <laughs> I don't know. Almost every single time, like there's in a submarine like are they really dead? It's it's the answer is no, almost always. Also, I like how I like the fact that they did include uh, Sherlock d- tenderly tickling uh, Watson's foot to wake him up. Ah, yes, the what the sleeping Watson foot tickle. <laughs> <laughs> if the internet had existed when this show was brought, oh, what a time the fandom would have had with the sleeping Watson foot tickle. You couldn't have moved on 80s Tumblr oh, for God. gifts of the Sleeping Watson foot tickle. Every possible variation of that phrase would be 18 year old's handle spelled 18 different ways. Warlock? Watlock. Sherton. Uh, Sherton? Would it be Sherton or Watlock. Warlock? Watlock. Watlock. John Locke, I think, is the term. No, that's the term for sh- the Sherlock TV series. Ah. Uh, this is the term for Edward Ardock and Jeremy Brett. Ah, uh, hard Brett. Oh, hate that. <laughs> um, <laughs> this, um... Synopsis does mention what Holmes like splashing his face with water. And I told Jackson that Holmes basically took a bath. Three splashes is like getting like refreshing yourself. Four is you're pretty much settling in to take a wash at that point. That dreamlike quality, like the water splashing the face and all that jazz. It's very like psychedelic. I don't know. Make it 30 minutes. There's some, there's something about like, uh, we like we get a scene in the episode of Holmes and Inspector Bradstreet, and they're talking about like the likely sort of circumstances of the crime, because mm-hmm. um, Saint Clair's clothes are found upstairs at the Bar of Gold, and his overcoat is found in the river outside the window, and the pockets are, are weighted down with coins, uh, five five pounds and sixteen shillings, to be exact, which is four hundred and eighty pounds. Or six hundred and forty dollars in modern currency. So like, Jesus. that's that's like somebody's bill. That's my so, rent. That's my entire like rent and utilities. So you're saying in this Same. show, five pounds was about six hundred pounds. 
yeah, so, back then. So he pulled down seven hundred a year, or was it a month? Oh what yeah, I mean, like we we can get it. I've Go got ahead, I've got a whole separate A four page of A four paper headed with the figures that we can get into in a bit. Well, I believe it up. I want to like let the viewers who maybe haven't watched the episode know there's this great bit where he says how much he's making, which is seven hundred a year, six hundred, seven hundred pounds a year. Yeah, and the way the police mm. goes, but that's a gentleman's income. Is amazing. Just like the the way he's realizing that class and money aren't real and is having trouble oh. with that is amazing. Yeah, that's that's the way you, I interpreted it as well, and not the poorest shouldn't be making that much money. That's because then Holmes replies with, "Well, he's a very educated beggar. Like, don't worry, there's the poor people aren't making more money than you." True. In 1891, 700 pounds a year in modern pound sterling is 57,434 pounds and 51 pence. In US dollars that is 76,573 dollars and 30 cents. Mm, I don't like that. That's now, pretty good. Dude was making nearly double the national average income. Yeah, that's like what tenure professors make. I got to read more Shakespeare. <laughs> Sorry, was that the lesson I was supposed to take away from this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, you, you do, you're doing great, yeah. sweetie. Yeah. Also, also, if you pretend to be poor <laughs> and you beg, that's actually better than actually working because that's how that works. But you have to know Shakespeare and Wordsworth and Tennyson. That is that is something that I do want to talk about. But uh, the right the point. I just remembered what my point was. Like what my point originally was. This, this story seems to me like because like Holmes and Bradstreet go through what how they thought the crime went. Like they've killed Saint Clair. They've weighted down his clothes with the heaviest things they had to hand, which was the coins, to throw his coat into the river so it'll sink. So they'd like to erase any trace that the man was there. <laughs> like that was the reason that they arrested Hugh Boone, the beggar. And then like Holmes washes his face, and like that's how he comes. <laughs> like like that's how he realizes what's gone on because there's some kind of um like a sort of a wrench in the works is that mrs sinclair has received a letter from her husband that says you know that says that he's still alive but they you know he went missing on the monday and she received the letter on the friday and you know they talk about how well the letter could have been written at any time and posted after he was dead so there's all you know there's various kinds of like questions that are still raised and then holmes like meditates and washes his face and that's seemingly how he comes to the conclusion and you can understand that because it's like a lot of what holmes does is like association watson will often make like an offhand comment and that'll give holmes the piece of the puzzle that his brain was missing to like interpret the facts in a different way but i think right the way that it's portrayed especially in the episode is this is the one time he was just guessing. <laughs> I love the idea of this episode is he showed up in the jail, forcibly bathed a uh, prisoner, and then it turned out he was wrong. <laughs> it's just like, well, I have to leave the county now. <laughs> okay, okay. And he, like, yeah, he just like, he washes the guy and it turns out it's not Neville Sinclair. He's, and he's just washed a man. And he'd just be like, <laughs> let that be a lesson to you. Um, <laughs> and there are dudes that like, Five in the morning, seven, whatever. Like they wake up at dawn and rush over here. Imagine if Watson was woken up after, after only two hours of sleep to go over and just wash a beggar. Yeah, to, watch, <laughs> to watch Sherlock Holmes wash a beggar in jail. Like that's sensually. Sensually. Yeah. They like, would have had to put him in the adjoining cell because murder <laughs> would have been done at Scotland Yard that day. No, the thing that I like about that scene as well because it shot such a dreamlike quality. 
it looks like it's a softcore port almost, like at the beginning of it. Like it just yeah. because like they focus, like it's a good like focusing on him, just like squeezing the sponge out, just like making sure that him slowly wiping makeup off. Yeah, the unmasking scene is like shot and scored like an ethereal seventies porno. Truly, go seek out this episode on YouTube. Uh, and watch that scene because there is about 90 seconds to two minutes of Jeremy Brett staring Huboon in the face as he prepares a sponge and Huboon just making these very odd guttural noises and then about a full minute longer of him rubbing this man's face with a sponge yeah slow motion soft focus of Jeremy Brett menacingly lathering a sponge In two pieces of his three-piece suit, with the sleeves rolled up and his hat on, but no coat, and what is truly a wild look for him? It, it looks it looks like he's about to don the hell out of this. <laughs> like it's so uncomfortable when you think about the context of it, really. Because if it was just a beggar, that would be so weird. <laughs> like, if if anything, right? I think the story that Conan Doyle wrote is actually funnier. Because in the story, Holmes washes the guy while he's asleep. Ooh. <laughs> hmm. I w- like, I want you to... No, even even leaving aside the sticky issues of consent, I want you to imagine washing a sleeping person and them remaining asleep throughout the procedure. You'd have to be so tender. Jackson and I talked about this when we rewatched the episode today, about the idea that Holmes wakes Watson up, it's like the crack of dawn, they have to get there, because he's still asleep, and then they wake <laughs> him up and do it anyway, at which point he puts up no struggle. Like, it was, I think they were maybe trying to get around the creepiness of Holmes washing a sleeping man, but, like, it's... Yeah, it's just, just rub it... Just rubbing a sponge over a sleeping man, like, yes, cool. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm so smart. Clues. Clues. Oh, I do want to bring one other thing up, which is which is weird in the dreamlike quality of this episode. Before he wakes up Watson with that, you know, little foot tickle, um, he, like, Sherlock, like, washing his face, mm-hmm. it... It feels like it feels like it's out of like a nightmare. Like he's just like, oh, I'm stuck. And Freddy is about to get me. Um, I need to wake oh, up. I bet I'm not. <laughs> Man, I want that movie. That's the Nightmare on Baker Street. I would watch. I like specifically oh, the, into it. Specifically, like there was a bit. There's a bit where like one of Neville Sinclair's kids, like as, as yeah. they're getting ready for bed, like Neville Sinclair's like infant daughter comes in. Looks at Holmes and then leaves, and then leaves. I have. It's like it's like something from The Wicker Man. It's like it's so ominous. I have a monograph about Sinclair's just weird ass kids because as they're leaving <laughs> in the morning to go confront Hugh Boone and to, to as they leave in the morning to go wash Hugh Boone, like one of the daughters just stares at them out the window and they linger on her in the window watching yeah. them for like twenty five full seconds of just like, yep, what's her that kid? Yeah. Oh, maybe she's Sinclair at this point. Like, who knows? God. He just pulls off like a rubber mask. <laughs> it was I all along. I make 700 pounds a year being a little girl. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to bring up the oblique classism that is not sure. touched upon at all. Let's, uh, in this. let's go ahead and dig into the isms of uh, yeah. the episode here. And then we can do like a, I almost said an isms sandwich, and we can talk about something fun afterwards, but let's go ahead and uh, touch on the meteor aspects of this episode. Throughout like this entire episode, there's a focusing on beggars and poor people. One of the things, I don't know how you guys took this, but towards the beginning, um, Miss 
what's her face? I don't remember any of the people's names. Mrs. Sinclair. She was going through the poor part of town, and she and she hands a kid. She hands a kid like a I don't know, like a shell. I don't know what it is. A coin, pound, shilling, whatever it's called. Probably a penny. A bronze bobby. A <laughs> yeah, uh, but she hands she hands the one of the kids like uh, like a coin. It's like when you feed cats. Like when you feed a cat, like the other stray cats will start coming and everything. It was like that with with, with kid beggars, and the kids were looked like they were about to beat her up. <laughs> For more money, <laughs> like it. I mean, not beyond the realms of possibility. That whole thing, kind of like. I mean, there are people like now who say like you should never give money to homeless people because they'll just spend it on drugs. There's a lot of kind of like weird like Daily Mail style politics mm-hmm. in this episode. Uh, yeah. So, but one of the things also like you have that, and you also have the idea that. It's this dude who's been begging and makes a gentleman's salary. It's weird because he can he can quote poems and Shakespeare and stuff, and that's why people give him money. It's that's so cute, isn't it? He's just like people. Yeah, exactly. They treat the man with the twisted lip when he's in disguise almost like a like a like a really smart puppy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. And it's 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 kind of yeah. disgusting the more you think about it. We still have that kind of nowadays. There was a there was a mystery novel that I read that was set in uh, Tudor times, which is like the 16th century. It's like a sort of vignette in the story where like someone has a parrot, and it's like the first parrots that they've ever seen in England. And someone's like taught this parrot to say the Lord's Prayer, and like the way people react to that parrot is very much like how you see like the the London toffs in their top hats reacting to a homeless man able to mm. quote poems it's like it's like someone yeah. taught shakespeare to a monkey to them should we briefly just touch on the fact that he's quote-unquote selling matches which was if i were, if i remember from the last time we recorded this Maya, you had said kind of a way of letter of the law getting around being arrested for be- being a beggar correct yeah you couldn't it's like like <clears throat> he even um like inspector bradstreet calls boone a beggar and quote-unquote boone, quote boone mm-hmm. protests saying that he's a trader because like, cause what you do is that you'd buy a box of matches and then sell, like, quote-unquote, sell the matches mm-hmm. individually. But it'd just be like, instead of someone just giving you money, right. you were giving them mm-hmm. something. So commerce was happening. <laughs> the foundation of the empire. You cannot possibly protect. I didn't want to derail from the classism discussion. I just, we're, we're at that point, and I thought that yeah. was interesting um, to note on. But yeah. Jesse, go ahead, and what were you it, saying? It, it's... The fact that it was actually the fact that it was actually Boone pretending it's because it's oh it's so weird that this beggar knows things and it was actually a rich person who was mm-hmm. taking money from other rich people because he didn't want to be with his wife. I don't know. Wait, I don't remember that. It, what, why yeah. he did that? Oh, because he was making like fifty times what he could make as a reporter. But that's a gentleman's income. He mentioned that he made two pounds a week as a reporter, which in today's money is just over seven hundred pounds a month. What? Which is what I was making at my last job. That's about nine hundred and fifty dollars a month. It's this really weird combination of the poor's aren't allowed to be smart, but also if the poor's are smart, that makes them like a they might make them like a new puppy. You know, you could say things mm-hmm. at them, but then they say smart things back. It points out like how education is apparently supposed to be like a thing that you can only have if you're have money. Like you're not supposed mm-hmm. to be educated. Like you're supposed to, you know, just be a good old worker. My read on that is something. you kind of have this myth that shows up in a lot of uh Victorian literature that like there's the poor and the rich and then you have people who are the rich who have somehow become poor through like ill luck or whatever, but and they are essentially uh sort of like embarrassed millionaires and they're going to one day become 
rich again. And so I think the implication that uh, you know a person of this time might get from a person quoting Tennyson or whatever is, oh, this must be a rich man who his father died and took the dowry with him or whatever. We must feel bad for him. He's one of us. Mm. He's not a poor. He's part of this separate species that we are. I would say I can see that. I agree with Jesse based off of the way, uh, as Maya phrased it, the London Toffs give him money and kind of like as he quotes Shakespeare, the way that they like look at him and talk to him does really seem like he's their puppy. I think it's pretty telling that like it's specifically mentioned in the story that part of the reason that he knows so much like Shakespeare and poetry and stuff is because his father was a school teacher and he was an actor. They felt the need to sort of give his knowledge of these things an origin. Um, uh, P.G. Woodhouse, who wrote the Jeeves and Worcester stories, he also wrote another series about a detective called Smith, which was spelled P-S-M-I-T-H. Like, those were kind of like a satire of, like, Sherlock Holmes and Hercule Poirot. And I remember there's a very specifically, like, there's one story where I think he's tailing someone who's like a, he's like a plumber or a bricklayer. He's some kind of, like, like manual tradesman. And um, he's sitting in his garden and he's wearing nice clothes and he's reading Shakespeare. And he's wearing nice clothes because it's Sunday. And he's just been to church and he's reading Shakespeare because he enjoys it. And Smith, the detective, has like a, de- a manual of detection. And it says, tradespeople are very unlikely to dress well or read Shakespeare. <laughs> it, it sort of runs contrary to the sort of the ideas that Doyle didn't even realize he was like setting in stone mm. for like detective fiction. This show also seems to bring up the idea that the reason poor people are poor is because they're not good enough with money. Because uh, because basically this poor person who was making a gentleman's salary and was everyone's puppy was able to beg and get a gentleman's salary, but yet he was too dumb to, you know, he still buys this little little area like above a shop or something. Oh, it's an know. opium den. An opium den? Okay, an opium den. And mm. like, in, they again, they treat him like a puppy, but yet he's making all this money and... I don't know. It just, it feels weird. It feels like whenever someone does like, well, those, well, that poor person has a new thing here. So obviously they're bad with money. Hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, um, as part of like preparation for this, I read an article that was about like, that someone specifically like investigated sort of prevailing myth that begging can be a lucrative like source of income. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, like most people, you know, most people who are making sort of a livable amount of money and like livable in like you know has a lot of qualifiers on it. They're doing so, they're doing so through like a combination of um, of begging. Some of it is like you know selling blood and plasma, um, odd jobs, stuff like that. And if you know, so there was a whole kind of like study that it's like that was like pushing back against the idea that you know begging is a way to, to like. It's it's like and it's like easy money, which is like a you know get, it gets pushed a lot in sort of like right wing press. Mm-hmm. And the the um, the whole sort of thing about like um, Saint Clair was that he was in a position that allowed him to make money begging because he already had a place to live and he already had a bank account and like a lot of the times like people who were homeless any money they make it's kind of it your world kind of becomes like very very like short-term goals Mm -hmm. like you know you're just making enough money to get some food and then you go and get some food to buy sort of like alcohol or drugs and stuff because a lot you know because like addiction is a big part of Mm -hmm. homelessness and that's you know 
it feeds into like uh, what Jackson was talking about, like the idea of like deserving and undeserving oh, poor, and that's kind of what gets pushed in this episode with like the scene with the the girl who, you know, Mrs. Sinclair gives her a penny and she goes into the pub. Uh, before I say anything, Jackson, we will uh, link that article in our show notes uh, for this episode as well. Um, yeah, there's actually a uh, a segment that would happen with like George Stoffelman or something like I don't know Stotzel, I forget with the last name. But uh, it was Fox oh, News uh, business. John Stossel. John, okay, John Stossel. Okay, yeah. That's the name I've heard. Yeah, something. Uh, it's just, um, it's a white dude with a mustache. I don't know. They all look the same. Um, but but basically, he <laughs> would do multiple exposés, like, once a year, being like, hey, I pretended to be a poor, and I got $700 from begging, or something like that. And that was that's something that you could still see people reference mm-hmm. when they talk about beggars. It's, it's, it's annoying. You have this mindset of like, oh, they're begging all day, all night. When it's like, no, like you, you beg until you have enough for whatever. And then you, you stop. You don't want to like be out on the street for eight or nine hours, like a, a work day. They treat it like it is a standard job with like you know one to Friday kind of hours, and it's wild how that disconnect happens. Let's move into the next <laughs> juicy topic uh, now. But I know that uh, Maya, especially, you wanted to dig into the uh, disability aspect of this episode. Yeah. Because part of his guise as the beggar Hugh Boone, uh, Neville Sinclair fakes being disabled, and that that's like another thing that gets like pushed a lot in you know like right wing and tabloid mm-hmm. press is this i is like um, like over here in the UK we have this thing of um, the sort of the spectre of benefit cheats, people who are like claiming government assistance, but they're doing it as like a scam, like they're like they're pretending to be disabled, and like as a disabled person, this like gave me a lot to like think about because I, I I went to a convention last year. It was the first time I'd like really been out of the house for years, mm-hmm. and I did have a thought of like low level anxiety that somebody could take a picture of me doing a social thing in public and question whether or not I was disabled. Like there's Twitter accounts that that do this. They they, they try to catch out people who are faking being disabled. God, fuck and that. mostly what they end up doing is just creating incredible trauma and stress mm-hmm. for like actually disabled people. Sinclair is is kind of doing that. Like he's obviously like it mentions that like he was an actor and it, he used those skills in pretending to be a beggar and like one of the things was like he tried to make i think they actually said that he tried to make his persona of the beggar seem more pitiable mm-hmm. by making him disabled you know and and like this is this is a thing like you see it like you, see, you know it, you see it in like disney's hunchback of notre dame where like they do like a sort of comedy musical number about how the beggars in the court of miracles are pretending to have infirmities and disabilities and stuff mm-hmm. And it, it it's kind of like a huge prevailing myth. Like it's often used in comedy, like uh, like Eddie Murphy pretending to be like a disabled Vietnam veteran in um, trading places. This is kind of the same thing, but it's being like played for drama. But obviously, because of the time that it was written in, nobody actually at any point goes, "Hey, it really fucking sucked that you pretended to be disabled." Yeah. To make money. There was no welfare state when this story took place. It was like workhouses and soup kitchens and dying in the gutter, if you look. This idea that a guy, like, pretended to be disabled and was able to make... Sorry, let me just look at it again. The equivalent of £57,434.51 a year. But that's a gentleman's income. Kind of made me a little bit... Hmm... Mm-hmm. Hate that. It's something that I'd want to see, like, a sort of a modern take on. But I absolutely would not want to see no. Sherlock do it. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. I cannot imagine Stephen Moffat handling that well. I haven't seen the final season of Elementary, so I don't know whether they touch on it in there. But I'd, like, if anyone was going to do it, I would trust Elementary to do it more. But, That's true. Like, 
if Stephen Moffat even looks at it, I will stamp him to death. Stephen Moffat would somehow have orientalism in it, and also, I don't know, maybe Moribilism somehow? Like, that is definitely a thing, it bad. Don't know if we want to get into it, because we're running a lot of time. But I do want to mention, not a deal. I didn't want to touch it, <laughs> personally. Like, Holmes does talk about Velasca, who is the guy who owns Almost exclusively the- talks about Velasca. Why did you eliminate Velasca as a suspect? But it's always in terms of, like, things that he's done, rather than that he is just a sinister foreign. But at the same time, he is very much presented as just a sinister foreign in both the story and in the TV show, which came out, like, almost 100 years later. So that's not ideal. Also, he's just the last guy, doesn't look at, like, the dignity of a name. Yeah. Um, but definitely, like, for, for, like when Conan Doyle was writing, he, he would have assumed that his assumed white British audience would just take it as read that there was something sinister about the guy because he was foreign. The, the only other thing I wanted to mention is that um, there was a guy called Arthur Pember. He was a real, uh, ju- he was an English journalist who worked in New York City uh, around this time. And he was possibly the inspiration for Hugh Boone because he did do, like, undercover reporting. And at one point he did go undercover as a homeless person. Um... So it's like people have theorized that he was the inspiration for Boone in this story. But I also want to point out, Pember also went undercover as a circus performer. And I think there's possibly a parallel universe where it's exactly the same, but Sinclair was pretending to be a clown. (laughs) A mime. And it's called like the man with the bright red nose or something. Oh my God. So if anybody wants to write that fan fiction, you know, free to good home. Uh, let's go ahead then, and we can wrap up now with, if anybody's got any short monographs, and then we can go into, uh, Must Clash. We can dust off the old classic bit there. Uh, again, monographs are just something that you didn't have, like, a full cognitive thought about, but, like, so, for example, one of mine is when, um, Mrs. St. Clair is walking down the alley, she makes eye contact with these three women who just start mean mugging at her and one of them crosses her arms and shifts a shoulder in a way of like you want to start some shit and i don't know why but it was the funniest thing jackson will test i went back and made them watch that reaction again because it cracked Mm -hmm. me up so much uh I will say the the scene where Boone's wife, St. Clair, Miss St. Clair, sees Boone like in his normal outfit. So as when he's in as St. Clair. Yeah, when, it, when she looks up at the window and it looked <laughs> almost like a Victorian soft rock music video. And that scene also, I love that he stares at her for probably 15 seconds and then pretends like he got pulled back in the room. But they make eye contact at that window for an extremely long time before he begins the ruse. The only other thing that I had was there's a point where like Holmes is talking to Mrs. Sinclair about the letter mm-hmm. and he mentions that there was an enclosure, <laughs> which is which was um, Neville's uh, Neville Sinclair's signet ring. And I think she says something. It was just a trifle. And Holmes says there is nothing so important as trifles, which yeah. is kind of like his Holmes's methodology in a nutshell. And was also my grandmother's uh, ethos when it came to catering for Christmas. I wondered. If, I wondered if that was going to end with some kind of dessert joke. Well, you weren't disappointed then, oh, were you? Mike? I mean, I was. I mean, I want trifles now, so I I'm disappointed. But I don't have any signet rings, or I'd bring them over. I always like it when you can solve a mystery along with <laughs> the story. And <laughs> in this one, there's a bit where uh, Holmes is like, "Well, I assume Alaska killed this guy," and later point out that he couldn't be because he was at the door when. Uh, that would have been happening. 
I don't know. It was kind of clever. It, it's a good mysteries you can solve on your own. Yay. I wrote down t- Jeremy's correction boner, and it's the scene where <laughs> they're talking to Mrs. St. Clair. The murderer must have been Boone the beggar. Who else could have access to such a vast number of pennies and hay? And Jeremy Brett makes this face and shifts his body and it is basically like i cannot wait to explain to watson why he's wrong and it is like it is this amazing moment of like i like it's for holmes it's the expression looks like it's he's excited for this teaching moment of like ah watson but you see or whatever but like he can't do it now and he is just so excited for this later when he gets to like tell watson why he was wrong it, it's it's like when it's like when you're playing like one on one like basketball game with your dad and your dad just literally dunks on you because you're he's bigger than you. The parallel is exact. No, that's <laughs> I don't, Micah. Micah, I don't know if you've ever seen the the '90s comedy show, The Fast Show, but there was a there was a recurring skit on that called Competitive Dad, which was basically <laughs> which was basically that. I'll have to find and that, yeah. that was what I thought of when you started describing this scene. Yeah, no, I just, I don't know, it was this really great bit that Jeremy Brett infused into the scene of he's just so excited to get to explain to Watson why he was wrong this time. And I just He's just going to look at his face like, oh, you dumb piece of yeah. shit, I'm going to correct you so hard. <laughs> if it wasn't in Victoria times, you'd be like, hi, you dumbass, and then, yeah. and then he would go into it. Uh, but that's the last monograph I have. Does anyone else have any final uh, little tidbits? We didn't mention that, uh, that not only did Jeremy brett or uh sherlock uh wash his face off with a really big sponge he also poured like the soapy water a vase of soapy water over his face as well the boon washing money shop <laughs> yeah. all right so you know. it's time to move into must clash now <laughs> uh jackson just made the most amazing face <laughs> when i said those horrible when i said those horrible words well, if no one has anything else, that leads us to must clash. The way I see it, we have Inspector Bradstreet, um, Isa Whitney, the guy that Watson came to pull from the opium den at the beginning. And that's pretty much it, unless we're going to include Watson. But I don't think he's he beats that Bradstreet mustache. No, Bradstreet is, has a really great one. One of my notes I made when I was watching the episode was, Isa Whitney would be a contender for must clash. Mm-hmm. If his mustache didn't look like someone had stamped on a rat, because <laughs> we are we are not we are not seeing it in its in its best. Yeah, mm, yeah. You know, it, it's at very little hit points. So it sounds like, unless anybody's really going to push for John Watson, Inspector Bradstreet is the man going up against the Inspector well, from the Musgrave Ritual. Here, here's here's my main problem with uh, is it Faraday? That's what it says on here, Musgrave. But whatever the current the current oh, sure. champion yeah yeah um i will say good coverage but the ends don't do what they need to do i think for for a really good mustache now, for a groomed mustache let me say this because i know that for most people it's been over a year uh <laughs> or for us it's been over a year for most people who might be listening in the future it hasn't the the point of must clash is who has the best facial hair it's not just a mustache Okay. So he's, the, the sideburns into a sort of beard also count. It's it's because of the show right. it is and the time it is. It is usually just a mustache, but I want to propose a metatextual must clash. <laughs> Arthur Pember, the journalist, he was maybe the I... inspiration for Boone. Look at this <laughs> guy's face and tell me that isn't that that isn't a must clash of all time winner. Mm-hmm. Oh. Oh no! Oh my God! No, he wins. Can we? Can we? Can he win the metatextual one? 
Man is man is wearing an entire pine martin on his top lip. Like, I really feel like he could use those in combat, like slice through like a through armor with those by swinging his head just right. He takes it off and throws it. It's a boomerang. I feel like oh, he for has. Sure. More, I feel like he has more hair underneath his nose than he does on his head. You know the thing that like cats have whiskers to tell if they can fit their head <laughs> through a space. <laughs> I think Arthur Pember got his head stuck in railings a lot as a kid, so he grew the mustache. So it's is he like it's, if I can fit my mustache through it, then I'm not going to get my okay. head. Stuck. I will. I will say with Jackson, if Jackson backs me up, the Arthur Pember can have an honorary mustache uh, victory and a spot in the Hall of Fame. But I feel like we don't have a lot of great contenders this episode. I am totally fine with giving uh, this truly wild this. Um, yeah. These drills that will pierce the heavens attached to this man's nose. Uh, the wind if, here. If you if you scroll down on the page on the the web page that I sent you a link to, you'll see like a a, a drawing of this guy wearing like an old timey diving suit. You know, with the big like yeah. helmet with the windows on, and it's like I want to know how he got that thing in that helmet. <laughs> I... Did did his diving helmet have like like a special like mustache like mezzanine? Mm in it just for the mustache to go in that's what the uh, that's what the side ports are for there um so just because i am looking at uh the the faraday it seems okay yeah sure it's like inspector faraday or something as mm-hmm. much as i like some chops and everything everything i don't think they're not groomed really well like you know they, they're not distinguished and yeah, like they're not distinguished. inspector bradstreet it, like you can tell he spends at least 10 minutes on each hair to make sure it's perfect. Faraday just looks like he just got up and left the house. Didn't even didn't even wax anything. Well, here's what I'm going to say. I'm a purist when it comes to this contest. I'm going to vote for Faraday because he's actually in the show. If y'all outvote <laughs> me and pick Pember, so be it. But I can't bring myself. I have to. Oh, no, no. I was going to do Bradstreet. Okay. So it's two I for Bradstreet. Bradstreet. I mean, Arthur. Yeah, of course. The the honorary. There is an honorary victory for Arthur Pember, and he will have a seat in our Muscash Hall of Fame. Yeah. Like, don't get like, me wrong. It's like, it's like when... It's like when the Queen gave Rudy Giuliani a knighthood after 9-11. doesn't mean anything. I wow. did not know that happened. That's a lot. Um. <laughs> I saw yeah. Jackson process that information in real time. <laughs> oh, god damn it. That, mm, okay. Uh, anyway, I think I, I think I vote for um, having uh, Arthur uh, Pember be kind of like honorary Hall of Fame. Put him like not on the wall of, of fame, but like on the, in the entryway. As you enter yeah. the the atrium <laughs> of the Musclash Hall of Fame, there is a bust of Arthur Pember with a life size mustache uh, there on a pedestal. But <laughs> just a bust of the mustache, not just, the actual. Yeah, exactly. It's just a bust of and... his face and two pine cones <laughs> shoved on there. Uh, in the center of the the room in which we have the portraits of the king of bohemia and the guy who runs the paris museum from the final problem our two previous season champions <laughs> in the center of that circular room is a pedestal with the mustache <laughs> of arthur pember as our honorary victor i'm not saying no to that i just for the context of this yeah. contest because they're characters in the show i'll go bradstreet as well if arthur pember's mustache is grandfathered into this then i will also vote inspector bradstreet that means inspector bradstreet moves on to face next week's uh champion who we will pull from? Uh, do we decide, Jackson, if we're doing Napoleon's or Priory School next? Um, I think technically, based off of the order that we have them on YouTube, I think uh, six Napoleons is next. We'll get into why we made that choice later on as well. Also, I see Jesse like uh, adjusting their mustache in a very like uh, <laughs> very uh, Poirot way. Uh, yeah, it's a very Poirot type mustache, to be honest. Mm. 
Mm-mm. I was gonna yeah, say. I haven't myself because I Jesse from just home realized after having ragged on a guy's must or beard and mustache or chops for not being groomed that they themselves have not groomed their <laughs> facial hair yet. Um, so next time the Inspector Bradstreet will go up against the winner of the Six Napoleons. Mm-hmm. Six Napoleons. Yep. How do you hold that many Napoleons? <laughs> Tenderly. That's like those <laughs> memes you see, like who would win between in a fight between one Sherlock Holmes and six Napoleon Bonapartes. <laughs> Jesse, what do you have to pluck? Oh my That's god. That's a lot of ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> who right, who would win? Six Napoleon Bonapartes Napoleon Bonaparte size Sherlock Holmes or one Sherlock Holmes size Napoleon Bonaparte. Jesse, what do you have to pluck? <laughs> <laughs> I'm suddenly remembering why it took us a year to do this again. <laughs> I'm just going to plug one show, and that's going to be Creepy Critters. It's where me and my co-host Fiona talks about <coughs> uh, cryptids in a somewhat lurid ways. Um, I don't know when this is coming out, but by the time this comes out, like we're, we're, we're solidly in the middle of planning our bone cult. I loved hearing those words. So you know, Yeah, that was quite a sentence. Yeah, that was a good sentence. Yeah. Uh yeah, let's let's just let's just say we want them bones. Hmm. Be the driest version of yourself. Oh. What a fun way to say a totally normal thing. If you if you uh, ever, will... like if you ever run for office then Oh, if Jesse ever runs for office, I've got Hours of audio of them saying way more whack shit on over on OK Crusader. Uh, Maya, what do you have to, to plug? Uh, I do two podcasts that are also on the current just emotionally staring at the wall uh, hiatus, but will hopefully be coming back soon. Um, my stuff is on wreckersandrobots.podbean.com. I think that's the URL. It's been a while. Um, Sometimes I do a podcast about Sherlock Holmes in October, but not for the past two years because things have happened. Um, but maybe mm-hmm. one day in the future, who knows? Um, <laughs> I'm very excited for that to come back. I did a Choose Your Own Adventure Sherlock Holmes story with Maya that was extremely fun, but took much, much, much longer than either of us had ever anticipated. Three sessions of just... Of two hours each. Of Mike just wandering around. <laughs> A, like a gentleman's club <laughs> looking at looking at curtains and i i t- the phrase that we say from this show from granada uh the the, the edward Hart or the, rather the david burke era um i really did remarkably badly <laughs> <laughs> and i said that many times throughout the recordings so we can link to both of your shows in the show notes as well so that our fans can find them but i imagine most of the people who have come to our shows are coming from your fan, your fan bases anyway, but we'll link to those uh, in the show notes. Jackson, do you have anything else you would like to plug? Yeah. I am one half of gratuitous pausing. We are a movie bracket podcast. Uh, we just wrapped up our bride of monster bracket where we went through uh, movies with mostly female uh, protagonists and antagonists. Uh, yeah. I also do another podcast with my friend and co-host Madison Jones, uh, where it's just called The Equalizers, where we take films that never got a sequel or prequel either because they're very good and they don't need one, or they're very bad and they don't deserve one, and we give them to them. As you're listening to this, we will have definitely released probably League of Extraordinary Gentlemen 2, colon, the League of Superlative Gentle People. Um, definitely check... 
definitely check that out. Uh, I did not come up with the pitch for it. We had guests to do it, which was the right choice. It is probably the hardest I've laughed in six months. Uh, it is an amazing episode. Uh, you can find that over. We, uh, you can find us ever online by searching the Equalizers, and we spell it E Q U E L I Z E R S, like in sequel. Like in sequel. Well, next time, Jackson F1 and I have a smashing time with the six Napoleons. Oh, I get it. Nice. We're rare to meet thy go.